0: Hello, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens, a podcast about philosophy and politics and race and mental health. Today, I interviewed a philosopher from the University of Edinburgh, Berry Marosic. Berry does a lot of work that covers this area uh, in philosophy that's called moral psychology. Um, I guess a lot of the stuff that Berry works on falls under the topics of grief, love, anger, promises, and so on. And we spoke about all of these things in today's interview. Um, I asked Betty, you know, what is, what is grief? What is the experience of grief? Where does it come from? Um, Why does it change over time? Why is it different for some people? And I asked the same kind of questions about love. Um, What is love? Um, How does it take different shapes in different relationships? What are the different kinds of relationships that we can experience love in? Where does love come from? Uh, and this kind of stuff. And then we kind of moved on to a, a wider discussion about the limits of science and the limits of philosophy. And this, I guess I kind of spoke about this in the last interview I did with uh, Raymond Tallis. Um, and with Betty, I, we tried to kind of put our finger on or, or trace the boundaries of science. So for example, what does it mean for a scientist to make a scan of the brain during someone's experience of grief? Does that mean that they have kind of captured the experience of grief? Uh, this is something that we spoke about in today's episode. Before I play the episode, uh, just a few quick things to mention. If you're enjoying Alex Listens or any of the other work that I do, please consider supporting it on Patreon or through PayPal. Uh, if you support it on Patreon, there's going to be a benefit, um, or a number of benefits that come your way. One of them is that I'm going to be releasing episodes on Patreon early, a few days early. And thank you, a big thank you to everyone who has been a patron thus far. The second thing is that I'm running a beginner's philosophy course for anyone and everyone who's interested in learning about philosophy, um, it goes for six weeks. It's running in Melbourne, but it's also running online and it starts in about two weeks. So you don't have too much time left to enroll and it's nearly sold out, which is amazing, Um, but there are still a few spots left. So more details via the link in my bio. And there are also links to Patreon, PayPal, and my Instagram at AlexListens in the bio below. Thanks for listening so far and enjoy the interview. So, Barry, hi, how's it going? Hi, good, thank you. Um, okay, so I will have given you some kind of uh, biography introduction thing just before uh, the, the interview begins, but for people who don't know you or what you do, how, how would you describe yourself?
1: I'm a philosopher, recently moved to Scotland, Uh, I'm interested in lots of stuff, currently I'm working on a book on the temporal structure of emotions, I've written a book about promising and resolving to do difficult things, Uh, and uh, one of my philosophical heroes say, or or one of the philosophers I'm particularly interested in is Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, there's a book on the horizon about Sartre's work.
0: Wow, ambitious.
1: I like philosophy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and one one thing that I actually haven't really asked too many people that I've interviewed on this podcast is how they ended up doing philosophy. Um, and in the in, I see that you come from a family of kind of you know, it seems like mandatory philosophy. Everyone is a philosopher. Um, so I guess how how did you end up in philosophy? Was it kind of you know, totalitarian, or did you kind of end there freely, as such would say?
1: Oh, freely, of course, because we're condemned to be free. Um, it's true that philosophy is a family business, uh, in the sense that my grandmother was a philosopher, um, and she's really you know, a role model. Um, she wrote a book on Wittgenstein, uh, and she sort of was one of the first analytic philosophers in Croatia or at the time, Yugoslavia. I wrote a remembrance of her recently. I, I put it on my website. I, I'm actually very pleased about that. Mm. Um, she was sort of really a pioneer and she, you know, she lived through fascism. She lived, she lived through communism, and then she lived through the war in, in Croatia. So um, she really had a remarkable life. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, I was just annoyed that grandma was writing a book on my Amiga 500, which was a gaming computer in the 80s. So it's not like I was like, wow, grandma's writing a book. It was more like, wow, grandma's again writing a book and I can't play games. Uh, And the generation after her, so my mom, my my dad, they were all in medicine. So philosophy skipped the generation and now, now we're back. And my sister is also a philosopher. She's a philosopher in Germany and has written about mental disorder and addiction. Hmm. So, yeah, it's freely chosen, but I think philosophy has a kind of magnetism for us, hmm. I suppose. But I think philosophy has a magnetism, and maybe I just had a good fortune to be exposed to it early on.
0: Hmm. And I don't want to ask you a super kind of opaque and unanswerable question, but how ha- how has your how have your expectations um in terms of what, what you hope to get out of philosophy? How have they changed since beginning compared to you know, becoming a professor?
1: Well, at the beginning of, of studying philosophy, I was insecure about philosophy. I thought you know, it was all these arguments, especially in the analytic tradition, and it, it, I was worried that it felt a little bit like sand running through my fingers. At the end, I wasn't sure what, what, what I had left. Um, but then after a few years, I sort of started to trust that there is enough in philosophy. But at the beginning, I thought I needed to do philosophy and physics, or then physics wasn't going anywhere. So philosophy and literature. Then I was reading literature like it was some sort of, you know, poor argument, poorly, poorly structured arguments, and 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 so eventually I, I sort of grew comfortable with philosophy.
2: That's sort of at the very beginning.
1: And I guess lately I have found sort of more freedom to just really do what I'm interested in so I have lots of projects because I have lots of stuff that I'm interested in um, um, so I don't know I feel like I'm, I'm enjoying it more than uh, the, the, the actual philosophy I'm enjoying more than
0: ever hmm. and is, is that kind of freedom to pursue your own projects is that something that comes with professorship or is that you know did you yeah I guess is that a new Is that a new feeling?
1: Well, the the professorship, or rather the academic position, that's a different story. I mean, there's a lot of work that one does that's not really uh, the pursuit of one's own philosophical projects. Um, And especially in these days of the pandemic, that's rather hard. Um, You know, there's a lot of meetings online which are hard to sort of follow. Teaching is online, which kind of Takes the joy out of it, um, mm. sort of. There's alienation. Um, you know, conferences are online. The way I I wanted to explain this is, it's like having a, you know, having like a bike race or Tour de France on the peloton. Uh, it's not like I, I, the conferences aren't the Tour de France, but it is a little bit like you know. It's just an entirely different thing. So um, there's a lot to the philosophy job that's not the pursuit of philosophy and not all of that is particularly interesting Hmm. I hope that I formulated this cautiously enough (laughs) even even people who are hello administration
0: (laughs) I uh, (laughs) I I hope I hope they've enjoyed what you had to say (laughs) um yeah, yeah, and I guess from uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what it's like to be a professional, paid philosopher, but certainly a lot of the you know teachers at my school, uh, my university, you know, the, the admin and the bureaucracy and the kind of ticking boxes and the pressure seems to yeah be something that very seriously impacts. You know, their actual doing of philosophy. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, okay. So let's, let's move on to some of your, some of your, uh, some of your actual philosophy. Um, so I came, I came across your work, uh, in, in London, um, when one of your essays, um, on grief was a prescribed reading. Um, and, I I guess I hadn't really thought too much about grief before uh, and I, I hadn't come across moral psychology before. Um, so I guess, firstly, what, what exactly is moral psychology and how does grief fit into it?
1: Oh, what is moral psychology? That's a very hard question. Uh, moral psychology is a, a label that a lot of topics fall under. For example, questions about the relation between moral judgment and moral motivation. So if I judge that something is right to do, am I therein motivated to do it? That's the sorts of questions. Those aren't really things I do. I find those questions very difficult. Um, I guess I have my own angle in that I'm interested in the rational structure and temporal structure of emotion. And it, it makes sense to put that under... The heading moral psychology but i wouldn't but I wouldn't describe that as the kind of central topic of moral psychology uh, If I need a label for for what I'm interested in, I, I really like the label phenomenology um, where I begin with reflection on a course of experience a course of experience that I find puzzling. For example, the, di- the diminution of grief over time, and um, through reflection on this puzzling experience, I then sort of tried to understand emotion, but also generally this phenomenon that I find kind of at the heart of, of, of my philosophy. Uh, you know that we're subjects and objects at the same time. Um, I think emotions are, are great. Uh, Case study for that, where emotions are a kind of subjective point of view on the world, yet emotions also have a kind of objective reality. They are embodied; they are sort of physiological change and so on. And so, I'm interested in this kind of subject objectness of our being, and um,
2: uh, I draw that out of phenomenological reflection on uh, experience.
0: Right, and. I I I don't I don't I don't blame you for for I guess uh finding the question what is moral psychology to be a bit of a curveball because I don't I feel like of all the things I've studied that's been the least clear in terms of having some clear project um but it sounds like your where you fit, where your philosophy fits into moral psychology seems to be relatively clear. Um, so I was wondering whether you could, I guess, uh, in terms of grief, whether you could explain, you know, maybe what grief is and, and, uh, what you have kind of learnt about it, um, in, through moral psychology.
1: Well, good. Um, I have. I'm not sure what grief is, and uh, you know, I I I talked to my grandmother who who, who I mentioned before about grief uh, before she, she died, and she said I would understand grief when I grow older. Uh, so I'm not sure I've learned much about grief, but here's kind of the the, the reflections that moved me to this to pursue this as a philosophical project. Uh, There was a moment where my mother died. She was fairly young, and it was unexpected. And I felt very intense grief. And, you know, reasonably so. She had died. Um, And then, over the course of a couple months, my grief diminished very significantly in ways that I did not foresee. So the diminution was absolutely surprising. You know, people later said, well, haven't you... Read any literature? Did you? Didn't you know anything? But I guess, i guess I didn't. Um, maybe I was naive. And and this rapid and surprising diminution of grief led me to think, "Wow, emotions are not rational after all." Um, I, I thought they were because I thought, "Look, I had good reason to grieve. My mother had died. That's a very good reason to grieve." Um, and then you know the emotion changed, and the reason didn't change, and 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 also I didn't think that the diminution of my grief was somehow irrational, uh, and and so I thought, wow, look, they're not rational. And then I had a I had drinks with a good friend, uh, Matt Boyle, uh, and I told him, oh man, emotions are not rational. That's that's my takeaway from this experience. And he he said, no, no, you know this is worth thinking about further,
2: uh, and. Um,
1: he spoke about Aristotle very, very elegantly. Um, That was out of my uh, area of expertise. But then I did sort of think about it and this topic stayed with me and, you know, it stayed with me for several years and eventually I started writing about it and and now I'm writing a book about it. So that's, that's how I came to the topic. It wasn't the sort of, a theoretical project in moral psychology. It was really a, a puzzlement over my own experience, and in the theorizing of it, because as a philosopher, I feel like I theorize everything.
0: Okay, and in your in your essay um, in your essay on grief, um, you I guess one of the one of the challenges that you try to get your head around is. I guess what you just described, um, what, 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 and why do, what is, what does it mean for grief to diminish and why does grief diminish over time? Um, and what exactly, what exactly do you believe now about, you know, what, what is the relationship between rationality and emotions? Um, is, th- is there a clear enough one for, for people to, people who are listening to be able to kind of, you know, anticipate experiences that they're going to have in the future when, you know, um, loved ones pass away and so on. What, I guess, what, yeah, what is the, I guess, have you, yeah, what conclusions have you reached about the relationship between reasons, rationality and emotions?
1: Well, the the conclusion that I've arrived at is that emotions are forms of, as I, as I like put, to put it, embodied reason. So they're, they're, they're in the space of reason. They, they are rational as opposed to irrational. They're not rational as opposed to irrational, not always. Um, so, so emotions are not like digestion, which is irrational. They're more like belief, which is rational, though sometimes it can be irrational. But they're also embodied, Uh, they have a kind of physiological, psychological, historical and social reality, and and so to understand the rationality of emotion, so I say, you have to understand both the reasons for the emotion but also the way that the emotion is embodied in a particular individual, in a particular situation, a a kind of situation which includes um,
2: biological, psychological, historical, and social aspects. This is very abstract, but um, I think that,
1: you know, to put it in terms of grief, um, it makes sense that we're the sorts of creatures that uh, have limited grief reactions. You know, if, if we didn't, if we, if we had grief responses to loss that sort of... Fully reflected the loss. I think that you know our well-being would be compromised to the point where we wouldn't make it. Mm. But the the fact that we, as it were, need to move on from loss is not a reason not to to experience grief, because grief is not about ourselves. Grief is not about uh, our needs. Grief is about the 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 beloved who's who's died or the the, the lost object. And so I think there's a kind of double vision, where on the one hand, there's grief itself, a way of apprehending loss. And on the other hand, we can understand ourselves as creatures that need to move on. But these two thoughts, I think, cannot be fully reconciled. So I have this view of embodied reason as giving rise to a kind of double vision. Uh, I have this view, and I have to report, no one else has this view. So that's my kind of idiosyncratic take. And and some people like it in the sense that they find some something right about it, even if they don't fully agree. And I have had some people who respond very strongly negatively. Um, I think that's that's philosophical life.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I was really moved by your view because, um, Nurse, no, so yeah, yeah, it was a really like, uh, I guess it was the first time that I had like really thought about the passing of my uh my grandma, uh my my mum's mum. Um and one one very interesting thing that I was thinking about as I was reading the paper was um how my Baba, my mum's mum, um when she experienced grief it was extremely different from my experience of grief. Um, I I think, I think she grieved from the moment her husband died, my grandfather. She grieved from the moment he died until her death twenty years later, um, and that was very different from my experience of grief, which was, I guess, felt a lot more sharp and short. Um, and yeah, I guess I was. This is one of the rare opportunities where you get to ask the philosopher who writes a paper an actual question about their paper but i guess how does this fit into your model of embodied reason um you know people who kind of for you know whatever kind of environmental or social or uh, personal reasons experience grief in a way that is extremely debilitating and that does go on for what seems like a period of time that is so long that it gets in the way of, you know, everyday life. I I guess what, yeah, how does this fit into your model?
1: Well, um, I hear you. I I understand the question. So my mother had died, you know, and my grandmother, her mother was still alive for another 11 years, I believe. And, And she also felt the grief all the time, undiminished. And so when I talked to her about grief, I didn't do that much because I realized that her experience didn't quite fit in my model. Uh, She said I would understand grief when I was older. Mm. So um, there
2: are certainly grief experiences that uh,
1: are different from the one I described. And so I'm not sure that the way I theorize my experience neatly fits into those. Mm. Um, I would like to think that even those grief experiences could be understood in terms of this idea that, on the one hand, there's the reason for grief. On the other hand, there's the the situation in which the grief is experienced. And and features of the situation uh, bear on or shape uh, the rationality of grief. It's just the situation is very different. Um, so in principle,
2: the abstract story I tell could fit with with these um,
1: cases, but I I am particularly moved to understand the diminution of grief, and so that is not going to be prominent mm. in those kinds of cases. Look, this is a. This is a hard topic, and, and I think that the experience of grief is very important, and it's very personal, and I by no means want to, to legislate grief experiences. I wanted to understand the diminution of my own grief, and it struck me that as I was trying to understand it, uh, there were things that I could say that I th- hoped would illuminate some other experiences, um, but human experience is incredibly rich, and it's it's... As they like to say in in psychoanalysis it's singular you know it's 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 bound to the individual and and I I have the utmost respect for that
0: and when you were when you were writing when you were thinking about uh, I guess was was grief your entrance was that your entrance into kind of um, the the into philosophical discussions of emotion um is is that how you ended up kind of working on the the book that you're working on at the moment which is a discussion of emotions was grief the segue into that or h- how did you end up there
1: Yes exactly I uh I started thinking about my own grief experience and then um took it from there
3: Hmm
0: okay and what's what exactly is your new book about and what are you kind of hoping what are you hoping to achieve by, by working through it?
1: Well, the new book is about the temporal structure of emotions. It's called On the Temporality of Emotions. Uh, what I'm hoping to achieve... Well, I don't know. That's um, very consequentialist. Um, sorry, I don't mean to pick on your question. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Please you do. Know, the book, the book uh, reflects on the phenomenology of the experience of grief, but it is also uh, takes emotion as a case study of this idea of embodied reason, and I think that those familiar with with Sartre's philosophy or with existentialism may have recognized in my description of embodied reason already uh, uh, the, the existentialist idea that we are at once free, yet we have a facticity. We are free, but we're always in situation. And so the, the book seeks to articulate, um, an existentialist view of human reality, um, without making it ex, very explicitly existentialist. I mean, there are a few references to Sata here or there, but in a way, I'm trying to work out what I think could be in some way found in Sata.
2: Um, I'm trying to work it out
1: within the, you know, Anglo-American analytic philosophical tradition in the theory of emotions. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of the overall vision for the book.
0: Mm. Um, and before I kind of ask you some some questions about the actual contents of the book, um, what's it like trying to write about continental philosophy uh, through a an analytic paradigm um <laughs> what's that like
2: well
1: it's uh it's great because um i think there's in analytic philosophy a real interest in an appetite for uh new ideas and especially the sorts of ideas that the continentals are grappling with e- a kind of you know reach for for something perhaps slightly deeper but also obscure, a reach for um stuff that has to do with
2: you know death and the meaning of life, so to speak um,
1: So, in my own experience writing about this, people were always very interested when I mentioned uh, Sato because what I said was you know more or less intelligible i mean certainly compared to sato more intelligible so there was a sense that uh, i could really uh channel the continentals uh, i don't know if, I'm, if that's fair um anyway let me just give you an anecdote i mean when i when i wrote my first book it's called evidence and agency and it's about promising and resolving to do difficult things I had a draft for a while and uh, circulated it. And the responses I got were that uh, the bit about it that's really interesting is the bits where I talk about Sata because the view was that basically when we promise our resolve to do something then the question of what we'll do is uh, to be settled as as someone who is free to make it happen. So the fact that we are free to do it makes a difference to how we think about it. And that I think is an idea you get in existentialism. Uh, and so, so there was great interest in these elements uh, from SATA. So, so when I revised the manuscript and in, in the final book, uh, book, I sort of tried to emphasize the SATA in bits. And I think that's, that's perhaps what most sparked most interest. So yeah, that was very, very well received. In a way that's, you know, maybe that was my ticket
0: before before we move on to the book i wanted to ask you some stuff about sartre um and especially kind of how you understand what he's saying about freedom um so i guess as as i've as i understand it in in a very basic form uh sartre has this view that you know as you said we we have this like pretty radical freedom to kind of uh change to decide to change our circumstances and kind of move from from you know one activity to another and and change our lifestyle. But at the same time we're bound by our facticity and and this this kind of constant state of being uh in a particular circumstance and being affected by it. Um, so how I guess that that's how I kind of understood uh, what Sartre was saying. But how I guess what did it mean for you? How how did you understand what he was saying about freedom?
1: Yeah, that was very good. I thought that ca- that captures my oh. understanding as well. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, and how is that? I guess in terms of a like a in terms of a, uh, like for example. Grief, Um, how could you, in your book, do you apply this kind of reasoning to uh, grief at all?
1: Yeah, so I'm particularly interested in in Sato's idea of bad faith. And I think that bad faith, on Sato's view, is is basically a kind of willful misconstrual of our freedom. And there's two ways to do it. One way to do it is to deny one's freedom. Uh, to think like this, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I've been coming late to everything. I, you know, I'm just a latecomer. You know, late coming is what I do. You know, perhaps in the way that coffee makers make coffee. Uh, that's that's to deny one's freedom because it 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 represents coming late as if something as if it's something that kind of just happens to you, whereas you know. If it's up to you to be on time, then late coming is something you do and you choose. Um, Maybe not under that description, maybe not consciously, but if it's up to you, you are the one who determines that it happens. Um, And and the other way to misconstrue our freedom is to overlook that it is in situation, um, that there are circumstances in which it is exercised. So... um, For example, if I have trouble being on time, if I have a bad track record and so on, uh, it would be in bad faith to say, well, uh, you know, coming late is really disrespectful. I I just won't do it anymore. I will always be on time. As if that's the end of the matter, you know, you have to keep in mind that it is a fact that you have been coming late and so on, and this fact has to somehow play a role in in your reflections. You know, you got to as it were, set the alarm earlier, so to speak. Uh, okay, so that's the structure uh, of the theory when it comes to bad faith. And I think that there is a version of this thought in, in the case of grief as well. There is a way of thinking of grief and denying one's freedom. And that is to think of grief as something that just kind of happens to us, like a, like a fever. Uh, and it is to deny that grief is reasons responsive. So to see it as not rational at all. Um, but there's also a way to, to, um, overlook the, the situatedness that the sort of situational aspects of grief, and in particular, the way that it is embodied. And that's to take the view that, you know, the reason for grief is the loss. The loss doesn't change. And therefore you have reason to be grieving forever. And to the extent that you're failing to grieve, you're just irrational. And, you know, human beings are rational all the time. That's very well known. So here, one more. And and I think that grief is actually somewhere in between this 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 tension. It is reasons responsive, but you can't understand its reasons responsiveness apart from the way that grief is embodied in human beings. Um, I think there could be other creatures, the Vulcans, say. Maybe I'm dating myself uh, with the Star Trek reference. But... Um, you know, maybe they would experience grief differently, and maybe what reasonable grief for them is, is different. Um, so I don't think you can understand the rationality of grief apart from the human context. And not just, uh, here I don't, don't mean just human, but one's own individual situation, uh, one's one's historical social context, the, the particular relationships and so on. Uh, Yet on the other hand, it's a mistake to deny that it's reason's responsible. Here, this wasn't clear. I identify freedom with reason's responsiveness. So I think to be free is to to be responding to reasons. That's not something you find in Sartre. So this is where kind of I'm, I'm I'm domesticating him perhaps a little bit.
0: Hmm. Um. That sounds yeah. That that sounds really cool. Um, and. I guess a question that i have is if if okay so i i really liked a lot of what you said and i think i probably agree um if i agree what does that actually so i guess this is maybe just a a a more broad question about accepting a philosophical theory and how it impacts our life but let if i agree with you know, the kind of model that you've just given, um, how is, how does, how should that impact my experience or how should I kind of, can I expect that to impact my experience of grief in a particular way? For example, you know, if I accept that this whole bad faith thing that, you know, I shouldn't really think about any part of my life as if it's fixed and, you know, that's how it is. If I accept that, does truly accepting it mean that I have to then, you know, change my behavior or something like this?
1: Well, um, I think that the significance of the this sort of existentialist view is greater when it comes to action, as opposed to um, emotions, or as the philosophers would say, attitudes, reasons-responsive attitudes. So I think this kind of satan thinking does make a big difference when we're making a commitment to do something difficult, such as, I mean, the sorts of examples I talk about in my first book are promising to spend the rest of one's life with someone, promising to be faithful to someone, or deciding to quit smoking. Um, There, when it's a matter of doing things, there, the thought... I am not a fixed reality, but I am an agent. I'm, I'm free. That, that I think makes a huge difference. When it comes to emotional experience, um, you know, grief is not chosen. Uh, to, to grieving is not an, a, the emotional experience of grief is not an action. So, insofar as grief is active because it's reasons responsive, the activity there is different from the activity of, uh, refraining from from lighting a cigarette uh, it's, it's what my friend Matt Boyle calls the activity of reason um, rather than voluntary activity so there I think as it were the impact will be less because it, it won't translate into action
2: I think there the impact will be a kind of
1: self-understanding um yeah. I mean maybe I can say a little more about the self-understanding. I think when it comes to grief I've said I think there's a kind of double vision. On the one hand, uh there is the apprehension of the world that's internal to grief, meaning in grieving we we relate to the to the beloved person who has died. On the other hand, there's the the thought about ourselves and the understanding that grief is temporally limited due to human situation and and that gives a kind of irresolvable double vision and i th- i think that in my experience that that leaves us it leaves me unreconciled with with both death and grief um,
2: you know my mother has died and
1: the significance of that has not gone away. Uh, in a way, I have reason to grieve, yet I don't grieve, and it's all right. It's reasonable not to grieve. Uh, I, I don't think that I would be somehow more in tune with reality if I, if I was grieving persistently. Yet there isn't anything I can say to make sense of this. So anyway, mm-hmm. there's, there's a kind of... There's an unreconciled moment uh, in my experience, and I think that's
2: that's just life.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
0: And the other things that you talk about in your in your upcoming book, um, love, for example, um, is that. I guess how how do you how is yeah how do you how do you discuss love in your book? What is the kind of you know, how, is it, how is it different from, from grief?
1: I think that grief diminishes and reasonably so. Anger diminishes and reasonably so. But I am sort of profoundly optimistic about love. I think that love is forever. And reasonably so. Uh, I think that love
2: can persist you know,
1: past death in the sense that we can, we can love the people who die. I think that love can persist through change. I mean, death is a pretty radical change; uh, one loses lots of qualities. Uh, but generally, love can persist through changing qualities. And if you think about it this way, you know, when someone grieves for for a long time, after a while, we we wonder, well, you know, are you still grieving? Are you, you know? We, we we maybe we don't say it, but we might we might wonder with concern, are you somehow somehow stuck? You know, the clinical term is persistent grief. But when someone loves another person for a very long time, we, we don't have the same sort of worry or wonder. Um, and I think that's because uh, the end of grief does not stand in need of explanation. Grief ends or diminishes, whereas the end of love does stand in need of explanation. When, when love ends, you know, we, we think something happened you know, something extinguished to love, something suffocated it. Uh, and and so I think that sort of in the explanatorily primary case, epistemologists would say in the good case, um, love is forever.
0: Mm. And in when you say love is forever, do you mean that it, like there is some kind of, ongoing, enduring relationship of care that kind of, that is changing over time. Because for example, let's say someone loves their partner and as the years go by, you know, the love kind of takes different forms and shapes and increases and decreases. Um, I guess, yeah. Are you, are you trying to say that it's consistent or or that, you know, it does kind of take different shapes. But ultimately, there is this thing, love, that is kind of sustained over time.
1: Yeah, the latter. I think that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, I think love takes very different shapes. Um, and there's different kinds of love, obviously, very different kinds of love. Um, and some relationships require a lot of care. Uh, and others less so you know I'm particularly thinking of having young kids i mean that's a lot of caring um uh and some relationships are symmetric and some some are asymmetric so so love takes many shapes
2: um but the the thing I'm very optimistic about is that sort of.
1: Love is consistent with a great deal of change and with 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 the many shapes, um, and it really takes something for it to be extinguished. Some kind of real breach, I think. And that that is the view I'm I'm working out in the book. That's the view I hope to defend. Once again, I want to register that you know, people may feel very differently. Um, Recently, I spoke to someone who said, "But you know there's such a thing as just falling out of love, and it's something that happens to you and I, I you know I respect the description of the experience um i I can understand that someone might describe their experience in that way. I suppose i I lack imagination to see what it would be to fall out of love um so the view is you know, controversial and
2: provocative. Um, hmm. But I
1: think it's, uh, you know, it's it's about something.
0: Hmm. Right. And so love, love is, on, on your view, love is absolutely reasons responsive.
1: Yes, uh, because it's not like a fever. A good friend once replied to me, It is a fever. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and I want to say back, it's a rational fever. Um, (laughs) Love is, it's it's reasons responsive because, mm. look, you can ask, Why do you love this person? And it's very hard to answer it, but it's clear that why do you love the person is not a bad question. Like, you know, why are you digesting in this way? You know. Do you have any good reason to digest? No, because digestion isn't in the of, space of reasons. But do you have any good reason to love this person? Maybe it's hard to say what the reasons are, but the question is, is, is in place. Do you have any good reason to have a fever now? The question is silly. So, so I think that love isn't something that happens to us like digestion or fever. Love is something that is it's our take on someone. It's our apprehension of the other. And then what is the reason for love? That's an incredibly difficult question. But I think in the end, it's the other individual. It's the, the other's individuality, as it were. The reason is you.
0: Hmm. And how do you characterize, if at all, how do you characterize the experience of love?
1: That's a hard question. I mean, because love has these different shapes and, and, and different you know, forms of instantiation in different relationships and I want to talk about different relationships not just romantic love uh, I don't have a particular characterization of it um, there's this uh, paper by David Velleman called Love as a Moral Emotion which I have great admiration for and he he characterizes love as a, 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 a an arresting awareness of the others uh, essence the others, rational will he puts it in content terms um, similar to awe and amazement, and I, I like this this analogy with awe and amazement. I think love is a is a particular form of sort of amazement by the other.
0: I guess briefly, could you could you talk about the? I'm really interested in in hearing about, um, I guess the way you think about the different forms of love, like I guess you know. You mentioned romantic before uh what other kinds of love are there well
1: the the other kind of love i I think about a lot is parental love. I have three kids, and I love them very much um, you know there's familial love um, and there's uh, of course love that's characteristic of friendships and and this is another example where I think you can see that the ongoing relationship of care perhaps is not essential. You know, I have very old friends whom I love dearly, but life has taken us to different corners of the world and uh, we're busy with stuff. And, and so we don't, we don't speak that often. Um, so there isn't that kind of a relationship of care. That's, that's a very active, but I think the love is not diminished at all. I mean, and and when we do speak or when we do get together we we are there we we pick up where we left off
0: and do you think that that love relationships or loving relationships with care it it sounds like you don't think they are uh it sounds oh well i'm not i'm not sure but how are relationships loving relationships with care different from loving relationships like the one you gave where you know there's two friends on different sides of the earth um how how i guess i'm kind of yeah how do you conceptualize them as being as being different is it the care that's the difference or is there actually some like structural kind of some structural difference in those relationships. For example, like one thing you, you spoke about in your first book is, um, kind of, you know, someone promising to be faithful to their spouse. You know, you can kind of see how a breach of that promise is going to impact a, you know, uh, a romantic, a monogamous romantic relationship in a way that it's not going to impact a, oh, well, Presumably, not going to impact a um, friendship or something like this.
1: Well, right. Well, there's certainly betrayal and friendship as well, though maybe right. it takes a different thing. I guess in thinking about love in the way I just described, taking sort of development as a, as an inspiration, um, I'm inclined to separate love from relationships. Sort of, love is one thing, relationships are another thing, and you know, love can be kind of instantiated and embodied in a particular relationship. Uh, but it's it's separate, and the love can uh, survive the relationship. Um, That's a particular way of thinking about it. I think one of the main views uh, about love discussed in the literature is, is very different, where Nico Kolodny has this view that to love is to value a relationship, and that the relationship is actually the valuing of the relationship is the love, that would be a very different way to think about it. Uh, So, I I have things to say in response. Uh, I think love is about the other, not about the relationship, though the relationship shapes the way that love is about the other. So the relationship is a kind of background condition, as the philosophers like to say, not itself, the focus that is a view I'm, I'm working out uh, in the book. It's still in in progress. So we've spoken. I don't know when your listeners will listen if they crack open the book and find that I am defending the relationships view. Well, so it goes in philosophy. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this is where I'm at right now. I hope some of this made sense. Perhaps I, I, I'm too much in the weeds of the literature on love. I think love is just this kind of when the other takes your breath away and when the other is kind of a point of orientation of your life, and I think that the other can take your breath away and be a kind of point of orientation, even if you don't stand in in much of a relationship at all, because your circumstances don't allow it. Um, Now, the relationship matters very much for, you know, this is again this idea of freedom in situation. The relationship is part of the situation. And so how love will be kind of embodied will very much depend on the relationship, but love itself is dare I say it, a rational relation to another individual. And, uh, I think that possibly it is only in love that we relate to another individual as individual rationally. Hmm. You will forgive the hyperbole. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that that's, that's really interesting. Um, And I guess how universal is your theory of love? Like, is I guess I I guess I can ask the same question about grief. Like, do these things just apply to humans as rational agents, or do they apply to like any other kind of life forms, or you know animals or anything like this?
1: Good, that's a really important question.
2: Uh, so,
1: you know, I am uh, embodied and historically situated. I'm in situation. situation. Uh, and, you know, I think I'm in a privileged situation. I speak from a position of privilege. Um, I don't mean to deny this at all. Um, you know, I also speak in a kind of cultural and political situation. The, the thing is that I don't theorize any of that. So that, you know, someone can sort of theorize my philosophy from my context. One can historicize it and so on. I don't do that. So you can't do everything. Uh, I take it
2: um, as
1: something that I experienced as kind of the liberating method of analytic philosophy. That I can do philosophy in my own voice without theorizing my voice thereby. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I say things and uh, I think about them sometimes more than at other times, and I hope they ring true. I hope for attunement. Stanley Cavell, uh, uh, one of my first teachers, is a kind of uh, hero of mine, and he he articulates this very well. You know you you. You say things and in saying them, you put them forward and you hope that others will find themselves in what you say. So you don't just speak about yourself, but you don't pretend to speak for a kind of universal spirit either. Um, Such is philosophy. Um, And so so I think that this sort of philosophy is inherently risky. And I I feel very vulnerable Mm. because sometimes people are like, they can't see themselves in what I say at all. Just to give you one little illustration of this sort of thing, um, when Descartes' meditator um, says at the opening of the first meditation, I have set aside uh, uh, some time and I've rid my mind of all worries and I will now devote myself to the demolition of my opinions. when, When we read that, we don't think, huh, what a weird guy, you know? That's what he does, you know. Who, who is he? Uh, no, when 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 the meditator says "I," we think "I." Right? The meditations is written in the first person, but it's clear that the reader sees themselves in that position, and I like that as a model for philosophy. You know, I say things about grief, and I hope people won't be like, "Huh, weird." Well, he's you know. Grew up in the eighties, and then you know, this is this is this is how he grew up, and this is why he would say these things. No, no. I hope that when I say I, someone else will see themselves in this I, and will think I thoughts, and maybe they won't agree with everything. Maybe they will say, "Well, my experience strikes me as different," um, but that there is still something shared. There's a shared, there's a share, shared first personal perspective, uh, and how far it is shared. That, in a way, is up for grabs. So, I don't speak just for myself, but I don't speak for a universal voice either. I, I, I say things. I invite you. I invite my reader to see whether the shoe fits.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's a really, uh, like, I guess probably one of the most inclusive, uh. And self-aware things I've heard ever in philosophy. So, that, like th- I guess. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um,
1: sure, As, you know Stanley Cavell. Uh, must we mean what we say?
0: Hmm. Wow. Um. I guess what I, I, I really that that really resonated with me. Um, and it makes me wonder what it makes me wonder whether the area of philosophy you're doing invites or almost requires this kind of attitude. Um, because it's, it's because you're theorizing about things that are, um, I guess very personal experiences of grief, of love, of anger, and so on. But I'm wondering whether, um, you know, for example, you go up to a utilitarian and you say, ah, your effective altruism. You only like that because, you know, because you read a book and it resonated with you. And, and they'll say, no, well, you know, a a devout one will say, no, I like this because, um, this is what's good. This is what is the definition. This is, you know, how we should define good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the attitude, Stanley Cavell's attitude that you just that you just articulated and whether it's whether it is something that can be universal in philosophy or whether it's only kind of whether it's more relevant to certain disciplines.
2: Well
1: That's a hard question. I So I gave you a kind of methodological accounting of of what I do. And I suppose other philosophers will owe you a methodological accounting of what they do. Things I've heard said in response to my work is, well, where are the empirical studies? Have you read the science? And um, I think that this kind of approach that I have taken it's kind of prior to doing the empirical work. You know, to do empirical work, to measure, as it were, grief reactions, you have to first know what you're measuring. And so I'm, I'm proposing what it is that that's our topic for measurement, so to speak. Uh, now the utilitarian will have to have some kind of methodological accounting. Uh, perhaps it's sort of deduction from first principles. Perhaps
2: it's deduction from... Uh, Kind of um, things that strike the utilitarian as analytic truths Uh, or as kind of
1: obvious truths. I, I don't know, you know, perhaps, I mean, some people think that when you experience pleasure, you just understand that. Pleasure is good, as it were. The experience of pleasure does not leave open the question: Well, yeah, there's pleasure. Is it any good? And so, therefore, sort of pleasure is kind of the revelation of the good. And now, now you go maximize it. That's your ethics. I, I don't share the, you know, the shoe doesn't fit. I don't share that as a as a justification. I, I don't know if they mean to give more uh, of a methodological justification than what I have given. Uh, the question you you asked is hard because it, it you know it's the question what what is what is philosophy and and what the hell are we doing here and how does what we're doing here relate to what the serious people are doing that is to say the scientists and um, I think that's a that's a question for the serious people as well one that they don't really talk about much philosopher of science t- talks about it anyway so there's a lot to be said here and i don't know what to say about utilitarianism
3: hmm
0: i think you gave yeah you gave you gave a good answer um yeah and i think uh i think you've reminded me of the importance of having this is kind of you know something that that came up very early on in our conversation, the importance of having an awareness of the fact that that different people are going to respond to different things differently um, and every you know experiences are unique for different people. Um, and it seems like it seems like one you know one kind of hiccup in some science, maybe in neuroscience, is that you know when When you scan the brain and you show and you scan the brain during, you know, someone's experience of pleasure, you might be led to the conclusion that there is a part of that you can find, you can locate where pleasure is universally for people. And it seems like that kind of conclusion doesn't, you can't hold that view that you can extract. I don't know, the location of pleasure from an fMRI. It doesn't seem like you can hold that view at the same time as holding the view that everyone's experience is going to be, you know, unique. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. That was, just, that was just the thought that I had. Um,
1: well, I'm puzzled by the view. I mean, look, the view in a way was called into question by the great author of the book Utilitarianism. Uh, you know, Mill spoke of different kinds of pleasure and of higher and lower pleasures. Um, and, you know, the higher pleasures, are they really going to show up in the same part of the brain? Uh, I feel like you got to have a particular view of utilitarianism and, and a particularly, how shall I put it, simple, perhaps crude view of utilitarianism to, to, to hold that... I don't know. I'm speaking out of my depths. But how do you reconcile that, the, the utilitarianism you described with the utilitarianism you find in, in Mill? That, mm. I, that I already don't see.
0: You said before that, you know, what you are, one way that you understand your philosophy, especially about things like grief and love, is that you're paving the way for people to have an understanding. Maybe for scientists to have an understanding of what they're going to study. Um, What it is that is occurring in the brain when you scan it, when someone's experiencing grief. Um, do Do you have hope that science is going to be able to answer the question of, you know, why grief diminishes over time? Why love is forever? Do you think they're going to be able to answer questions like that in a way that... That you aren't.
1: Well, you'll get me on the record saying some outrageous things. Um, (laughs) But so it goes. No, I think that uh, it won't because it's the wrong level of description. Um, This is a perhaps a complicated idea we find, for example, in Davidson. In Anscombe. But, um, You know, if you want to understand uh, mental phenomena
2: like grief, love, you have to understand them
1: in in mental terms. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a description of those very same things at at a different level. Uh, It's just that the description at a different level won't give you the kind of explanation you're looking for. Let, Let me put it this way. Let's talk about football, or as Americans call it, soccer. I moved to Scotland, so now I get to call it football. You know, football, if you want to understand the game of football, you have to use terms of football, like passing, scoring, and so on. Now, of course, there is a physical description of what goes on in football. You know, it. it it's not like there's a football substance, like mental substance, which is a different reality altogether from physical substance. No. But the physical description of the trajectory of the ball will not help you understand the game. Does that make sense? Mm. And so I think to to understand the game, you have to get the right level of description. And it seems to me that to get the right level of description for understanding things like uh, grief and love and so on, You have to have a human level of description, a kind of uh, level of human concern. You have to have a description in terms of reasons, in terms of human reasons. Davidson speaks of the constitutive ideal of rationality. And I just think that when you move to uh, descriptions, uh, you get through fMRI images. It's, it's a different level of description that I think won't make intelligible those phenomena in the terms that, that we want to have them be intelligible in. That's not to say that there isn't that kind of productive understanding through the other levels of description. I mean, once you understand something about trajectories of objects, you can sort of bring that into your understanding of the game of football. Um, you know, the physics makes a difference. But I don't think that ultimately uh physics is going to reveal kind of the the secrets to football uh and, and by the same token, I think that an understanding of of the workings of the brain makes the difference to our understanding of the emotions, but I don't think that the the secrets of the emotions lie in uh the, in a in a description that's given in terms of the functioning of the brain. I think that an understanding of the emotions lies in a description. Uh, given in terms of social interaction. I mean, grief is a response to the death of a beloved or to to a loss. And the loss you won't find in my brain. The loss you will find out there in my my relatedness to to the person who died. And love also you won't find in my brain because love is the relation to another individual. And so to understand love, I think you have to have a description that brings in the other individual. Hmm. So I said my outrageous things. You can publish them.
0: Okay, maybe maybe I'll ask one more question, um, and and that is, uh, what what advice do you have for someone who is who is interested in philosophy and who is thinking about, you know, taking it, taking it further, and maybe doing an MA or a PhD or even a BA. What what advice do you have?
1: I will pass on advice I received when I was a, a student early on.
2: Someone I still love dearly um,
1: once said to me, you know, you have a market self and an artistic self. And don't forget either one. So, you know, the philosophy you do, it has to speak to your artistic self in the sense that it's got to be about something that really matters to you, something that really moves you. But you can't do just philosophy like, oh, I'll just do the thing that really matters to me and, and, and you know, forget everything else. Um, and if no one's going to read it and no one's going to publish it, they're lost. Like you, you, philosophy, like everything else, is in the market. Uh, the, the market is, has its own currency, uh, and in a way, you you can't be outside of the market. So you have to uh, meet the markers of success, uh, you know, in your studies, in your publishing, and and so forth. Uh, but so so the best advice I received was to not forget your artistic self, but to not forget the mark itself either but but to strive for a compromise and so that would be my advice to strive for a compromise
0: Mm, i think that's very helpful advice um well hey i've i've taken up i've taken up a lot of your time um so i'd like to thank you uh for 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 taking the time to chat with me this has been a really a really um it's left me with a lot of thoughts, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and thank you for being so, so thoughtful and so generous with your, your time and your knowledge.
1: Thank you. And thanks for
3: listening.
2: Thanks so much.